Okay, so we're going to carry on with our study through the book of Genesis. We are looking at those, that, that portion between chapters 6 and 9, uh, which details the flood, the flood of Noah, as often we refer to it. Now, the chapter 6 we started looking at last week, and we spent most of the session just on the first seven verses, um, really looking at the reason for the flood. And it's so important that we understand that portion of Scripture, because so much of the Old Testament becomes clear when we see why God sent the flood in the first place. And we highlighted that you know, God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if just ten righteous people had been found there. And yet the whole world is destroyed by a flood at the time of Noah. So that on its own indicates that there was something very seriously, drastically wrong with the things going on on the earth. That God went to those extreme lengths to wipe all flesh off the face of the earth. And that's what we were looking at last week. Chapter 7 then gives us the details of the flood itself, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, and then chapter 8, um, Lord willing, we'll get on to next week. And we see the, the new world as uh, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, and then in chapter 9, God establishes a new covenant and makes a promise. And again, we'll, we'll look at those details when we get there. So just a reminder... We looked last time at the evidence that there was once a worldwide flood, and the evidence is abundant. Anywhere you look in the world, you can see all sorts of fossilized creatures that have been laid down in sedimentary layers uh, throughout the world. Um, you've got salt water in the, the highest uh, elevations in mountain lakes and regions. You've got fossils at the top of mountains. Uh, and again, all these things testify to what the Bible says. And, you know, up until the kind of 19th century or mid-18th, 19th century, you know, there wasn't really any other views that were, were credible. And then all of a sudden we get to Hutton and Lyle and Darwin and these other characters that came on the scene that really had this um, desire to get people away from the Bible. And so they come up with these other theories that somehow got accepted. And what amazes me is that scientists in the day actually bought into these things without any credible evidence to support it. It was just theoretical ideas that were put forward without really having any support. And suddenly it's gained widespread acceptance. And now it's the major thing that's taught in our schools and universities and so on. And people don't talk about the flood. People will laugh and and mock the idea that there was once a flood. But, you know, the amazing thing is, and we've heard all sorts of comments and things, you know, people now start talking about a flood that was once on Mars. This is a planet with no water. And yet the idea of a flood on the Earth, people go, oh, no, no, that couldn't have happened, which is primarily water. So, you know. Again, we looked at the reason then God sent the flood uh, and also why are there so many battles in the Old Testament and so on. And we said, look, we have to remember that Satan is man's adversary. Satan is not God's adversary. I think I mentioned last time, people, particularly during the Dark Ages, there's this idea put forward through a lot of art and so on, that we've got God in one corner and Satan in the other, and there's this kind of battle, and we're all kind of hoping that God wins. It's not the case at all. God is God. Satan is just a created being. And God has allowed Satan the freedom he's had for now because it fulfills God's purpose. You know, when God created, something I was talking about, and yesterday at the conference. But when God created, we, we touched on this back in chapter 1 of Genesis, God created darkness and light. And God said that the light was good. doesn't say anything about the darkness, but by implication, the darkness is not good. See, right in the opening chapter of the Bible, God presents choice. In Thessalonians 5, we're told that we are not of the darkness. We're not of the night. We are of the, the day. We're children of the light. You know, those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ are of the light. You know, the opening of John's Gospel. In fact, let's just very quickly go off on a tangent even before we've begun. This is exciting. Turn to John's Gospel for me with you. So chapter 1. And we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. Speaking of John the Baptist, who came to bear witness of who Jesus was. Verse 9 says, speaking of Jesus, that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. 
You see, Jesus has come to bring light. And there is that choice between darkness and light. We make our decision whether we're going to follow Jesus Christ, the light, or whether we're going to live in darkness. You know, the world does its its deeds under the cover of darkness. But interestingly, you know, when we get to the New Jerusalem, there will be no night. There will not be that need for choice. The choice has already been made. For those who are in the New Jerusalem, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, there will just be light. There won't be any darkness. Well, again, last week, we were just looking at then the reason that Satan engineered to send these angelic beings that had rebelled with him. Revelation tells us that a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. We read that in Revelation 12. And some of these angels came to the earth and had relationships with the women of the earth and the offspring were the giants as we now know them and refer to them. Let's just read the text quickly and then we'll catch up. We got as far as verse 7. Just read the first seven verses again. came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, that's the angels, direct creations of God, saw that the, daughter, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took their wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. God gave man just a hundred and twenty years from this point before he would bring judgment upon the earth. And verse 4 says, There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, because the same thing happened after the flood, not in the same degree, not in the same measure, and it was far more localized for reasons we'll talk about when we get a little further on. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same began mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, again, it's a strange concept for us, and this is why some people struggle with it. And yet, it's what the Bible says, both in the Old Testament, and it's corroborated in the New, and surprisingly, it's corroborated by history. All sorts of evidence to support this. And even just in terms of the mythology that has sprung up because of this. You think of Greek mythology. You think of what the Babylonians believed or what the Assyrians believed and so on. They all have these stories of these godlike beings coming down and taking a bride from one of the women of the earth and so on. So many of these ideas that have come through in mythology and literature and so on. Verse 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay. Again, this giant's the word in the Hebrew is this word Nephilim. Verse 6, and it repented. That word repented there uh, in the Hebrew. It's this word Nacham. It just means to breathe strongly by implication to be sorry. It's like a sigh. It's God's sighed that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, this isn't saying that God had made a mistake and think, oh, I've got it wrong. No, it's just God saw what was going on. Of course, God knew beforehand that this was going to happen. But it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it less painful. You know, when you see your children doing something that you know they shouldn't do, it hurts. Well, for God who's created this wonderful world, Genesis 1.27, God declares everything very good. And now we get to this point. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy the man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. And so we carry on now, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So there's a, there's a hope there here. These are the generations of Noah. That, that word again, that totally die. You may remember we mentioned that. Genesis is a collection of writings. And this now is the generations of Noah. And it's separated through the book. There's about 10 or 11 times this occurs in the book of Genesis, each time marking a separate point. So now we're going to get into the, the story of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah was perfect without sin, no, because we've all fallen short of the, the glory of God. This is simply saying that Noah was genetically pure. His generations hadn't been tampered with. There was no corruption in Noah's line. Whereas the rest of the world had become corrupted. And Noah, we're told, walked with God. What a great testimony. But Noah walked with God. You know, each and every one of us are called to do the same. To walk with God. You know, that's what we see back in the Garden of Eden. That Adam, Eve should have just been walking with God. 
as a result of their sin, they end up hiding from God. And as God is walking, they hear the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, and they hide themselves. That wonderful unity was separated and broken. Of course, when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we find that everything is restored and God's walk with man is resumed. It's a shame that we've had to go through all of history and that God had to send his son to bring us back to that point. But ultimately, all those that put their trust in Jesus will be in that place of walking with God for eternity. We've seen already that Enoch walked with God. And now we're told here that Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's not, by the way, their birth order. But what you find in Scripture is the way the Bible lists things is always in regards to the most significant in regard to God's plan. Now, Shem is going to be the one who we're most interested in out of these children because from Shem is going to come Abraham, one of his descendants, and that leads on to the Jewish people. That leads on ultimately to the Messiah. You'll find in a number of other cases, and as we go through, I'll highlight some of them, that you have people listed. At the time, maybe one of the individuals was more important, but the one that's listed first is the one that has the most relevance in regard to the biblical narrative. So we look at Noah briefly. He's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel as one of three that are righteous, along with Job and with Daniel. He's uh, included in the genealogies in First Chronicles, in Luke also, of that line that ultimately comes down to the Messiah, uh, all the way down through from Adam, down through all these individuals. Uh, and there's a number of references in the New Testament to Noah. Uh, there's no question that Noah was a real individual, that we're dealing with historical events. This isn't just some mythology here. And lots of evidence to support that. In verse 11, we carry on. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. You see, that's what Satan had done. Satan just loves to bring about this kind of situation. He hates mankind. Remember that Satan wanted the, the rule of the earth. He wanted to take this place for himself. And he hates man. He hates the fact that God had created man in the image and likeness of God. Isaiah 14, again, we read that Satan wanted to be like God. And that Paul says in his letter to Timothy that Satan's sin was pride. He thought he should have that position. You know, all the violence we see going on around the world today all comes back to one source, ultimately to Satan. Verse 12, and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. That's in contrast to Noah whose family were pure, who were without corruption. Verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, again, this, this situation that Satan brought about. And bear in mind, this isn't just Satan just wanting to be a menace and to uh, just cause problems for mankind. Satan's real desire here was to stop the possibility of the seed of the woman coming. Back in Genesis 3.15, there had been that promise that God has said to Eve that there would be a seed who would come, an offspring, one of her descendants, an offspring. And I probably, I expect that Adam and Eve thought that that may well have been Abel. And Cain obviously kills Abel. And then uh, their next child, Seth, is born. And... I expect that they thought that Seth was going to be the, the one because they named him appointed. God has appointed me another heir, is what Eve says. They didn't know which one the seed was going to be. They probably had no concept that it was going to be at such a, a long time yet future. But they knew. And of course, Satan knew as well. Satan was determined to try and stop the possibility of the seed of the woman coming. And this is why he was set about doing all these things. So God then says to Noah, verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood. And obviously what we find Noah does is get his sons to go for wood. So I had to put that in there. Uh, the rooms thou shalt make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. That's just an interesting point there, by the way. Because if you're going to make something waterproof, typically you just put it on the outside. 
You do, do pitch, put this pitch, this waterproof covering on the outside, but it's also put on the inside. And I'll just throw this out there for those who are interested. A number of scholars actually think that the reason that God tells Noah to make this kind of this waterproof protective covering on both the inside and the outside was not just to protect it from water, but also to preserve it. And there are some that think that the ark may one day yet be found, and it may be found when we get into that time of tribulation. And there's a number of interesting reasons why people think that, uh, and it will stand as a great testimony of what God has done in the past and of the coming judgment. So just an interesting thought. But whatever, for whatever reason, there's this pitch placed on both sides. Verse 15, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. And we'll give the details. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shall thou make to the ark in the cubit thou shalt fashion it above, and the door of the ark thou shalt set in the side thereof, with the lower, second, and third stories shall thou make it. Now, we've probably seen in our kind of children's books pictures of Noah's ark. That is not Noah's ark. That's the kind of storybook picture that we often get. A cubit, by the way, is typically about 18 inches. It's the measurement from the elbow to the tip of your finger. And it's various lengths, but typically 18 to about 21 inches is normally the accepted uh, measurement. The ark would have been far more like that. A three-story vessel, a massive, massive boat, effectively, or ship, whichever you prefer. That's, again, the kind of uh, measurements. We're looking somewhere around about 450 feet long and about 75 feet wide. I mean, this really was a big thing. But it's interesting because the dimensions that are given are just the best possible dimensions to make a vessel like this stable. Now, okay, it may not have been able to cut through the water at high speed, but it didn't need to because it was purely there to float. You know, it's been worked out. Um, the displacement, some around about 24,000 tonnes um, from the, just the weight of this thing in the water. Um, easily, you'd have been able to get the 18,000 or so species on board the ark um, that Noah would have had to put on there to preserve the life of all the animals. Uh, it's been estimated you could get somewhere in the region of about 125,000 sheep on board. It just gives you some idea of the scale, because so often people think of Noah's ark, because again, there's those little storybook pictures if you look at ships, it's not up until uh, we get to fairly recent times that we find we get naval or, or vessels that are actually larger. The Titanic was larger, and obviously Queen Mary the second you can just see there, um, larger, about double the size of the Ark in terms of length. But, I mean, it's only been in recent years that we've actually built vessels that were larger than Noah's Ark. Now, again, just looking at the dimensions that were given, it was absolutely stable. I mean, he could have tipped quite significantly one way or another, but because of the center of gravity, it wouldn't have capsized. So even on a stormy sea, this thing would have been very, very stable. There's a chap in Holland that has built a half-sized replica of the Ark. Uh, it's an incredible feat. He wanted to actually bring it up the Thames, but was refused permission um, some years ago, which was quite interesting. Not sure why our government had such an objection to this, but anyway, uh, they did. Um, that's an inside picture of, of his attempt to do this. Uh, another picture of the, of the completed work there. Uh, and you may be aware that in America, uh, Answers to Genesis have now built a full-size uh, replica of the Ark based upon the dimensions given, and that's what we're kind of looking at. You get the idea of the scale of this thing. You know, this really was a big, big vessel, easily capable of carrying all the, the animals and livestock and the food and everything else required for this uh, journey, this, this time that it was going to be afloat. Verse 17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, <clears throat> wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. And I shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Uh, two of every sort shall come unto thee, uh, to keep them alive. It's interesting it talks about kinds here because the Bible makes it very clear that when God created everything, things were created after their kinds. 
And, you know, we find that things reproduce after their kind. So we don't necessarily have to have all the different varieties of the cat family that we see today, for example. You know, we've got lions and tigers, and then we've got your domestic cats. You know, they're all the cat family. So it may just be that on the ark we just had one of the early versions of something from the cat family. And as they've produced over the years and there have been slight defects and mutations and so on, and there's no problem with mutations. Mutation is just a loss of information. And we end up with, with different things, uh, including, of course, the, the kind of domestic cats we have today, which have got a considerable loss of information. Certainly our cats are a bit dopey at times. you know. But it doesn't necessarily have to be every type of every animal uh, on the ark in that sense. It's just simply the, the root, in a sense, of the tree. So... Verse 21, and take thou unto thee of all, uh, of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. So again, food for the animals as well. Uh, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Interestingly, in Hebrews 11, verse 7, it says there's a chapter that speaks very much about faith. And it says here that by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah warned of things that he'd not seen yet. What what, what was it that he hadn't seen? Rain. Rain hadn't been uh, uh, seen at this point. Initially, God had created a mist of the water, uh, a very kind of tropical environment, I guess, that this moisture, this mist had come up from the earth and that, that had been what would have watered the plants and everything else. But rain hadn't been seen. Now that kind of puts it in perspective when Noah is building this ark, this big boat, and people are coming and saying, no, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just getting ready. For what? Uh, this, 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 God is going to send a flood on the earth. Okay, can I just point out, no, you're building this on top of a really high mountain and the water's way over there. Yeah, don't worry, God's, God's got this sorted. And people would have been thinking, no, you're crazy. Probably in the very similar way that people today sometimes look at Christians and they hear about the belief we have that God is going to come and to take us from this world back to the place that he's been preparing for us. They look at it and they think, well, that's, that's stupid. It's crazy. How could you think that? But it's faith. But it's not a blind faith. It's faith in a God. You see, faith is not faith in itself. Faith is faith in God. And Noah had faith in God, that God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to. Let's just jump into chapter 7. Then the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Again, what a, a testimony for Noah. You know, in each generation, God looks for those that are righteous, those that would stand for him, those whom he can use. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, there's a very similar kind of call. We see it in the revelation that John has, where John is kind of caught up into heaven. And seemingly in Revelation, it's that kind of uh, point where after the church age, the church is kind of caught up to heaven. And it's called here that Lord just calls Noah into the ark at the right time to take him out of the way as he brings his judgment upon the earth. Luke 21, verses 34 to 36. After Jesus has been talking about all that is coming upon the earth, you know, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the pestilences, all those kind of things that are coming. You know, the increase in lawlessness, which we're seeing already all around us. Men becoming lovers of selfies, sorry, lovers of self, um, although both apply. You know, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, after Jesus explaining all of those things, he says, For as a snare it shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Just as the floods came upon the whole earth, so a time of tribulation is coming upon the whole earth, which will take people just as much by surprise as the flood did in the days of Noah. And Jesus says to the disciples, to us, Watch you, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You see, just as God made a way of escape for Noah and his family, 
God has promised that there is a way of escape for all those who put their trust in Jesus. Isaiah makes it really clear that God is bringing a time of judgment upon this world because of the iniquity, because of the wickedness of man now. We've seen already that that prophecy a couple of times we've looked at where Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, the world was overrun with wickedness then, and the world is becoming overrun by wickedness now. We need to look again, just events in London this week. It's interesting, I don't know, you know, so much you start to see of God's plan unfolding. Uh, the, the, The police have come out today and said they may never know the intentions or the reasons. I can't help but see there just a little bit of political correctness. You know, they're not coming out and saying that this was done because of uh, an Islamic ideology. And they don't want to say that because, of course, they're trying to stop people saying that the root cause of the problem here is Islam. You know, I'm not saying the root cause of this is Muslims, but the root cause is Islam. You know, Islam itself, we're talking, I mentioned yesterday that people have got this strange idea regarding fundamentalism. And anybody that's seen today as a fundamentalist is seen as being a bad person. You're seen as being intolerant of other people. Well, that's just a complete nonsense, really. When, When you think about what a fundamentalist is, a fundamentalist is simply somebody who sticks to the fundamentals. You know, a school maths teacher is a fundamentalist. You know, you may want two and two to equal five, but it's never going to do so. You know, a football referee is a fundamentalist. They stick to the rules. You know, a doctor is a fundamentalist. They stick to the fundamentals. And you're kind of glad they do. You don't just come up with any idea you want. That's all a fundamentalist, somebody that sticks to the fundamentals. So the real issue is what are the fundamentals that you stick to? Now, unfortunately, when it comes to Islam, the fundamentals are the problem. For us, our fundamentals are God's word. That's the standard. That's the basis. That's what we build everything on. We believe that God has communicated to us through this book everything that we need to know. He's given us rules for life, for our guidance, for our protection. And if we stick to those, it's going to be good for us. But again, we saw on... The day after the, the events, I've lost track of the days of the week. But all these people gathered in Trafalgar Square. And there was a big thing made. of There was all sorts of religious leaders from all sorts of denominations and faiths and everything else all coming together, all kind of almost linking arms and, and you know. But what does that say to the world? It's just, all it's showing is that actually we can all work together. We've probably all got the same God anyway. That's a, that's a nonsense. You can't have a God who has given you all sorts of various options and routes in which way to serve him and worship him. You can't call God by whatever name you choose. God is God and God has revealed who he is in the pages of scripture. Everything else is a, a corruption or an imitation or, or worse. And it sounds very dogmatic and intolerant to say that, but Jesus said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, you don't have to agree with that. But that's what the Bible says. And that's what we believe. But Scripture here again, we're told that God is going to send judgment upon this world because this world has rejected God. But there is a way of escape. Just as Noah, we're seeing here, was given this way of escaping that judgment because of his righteousness. So us, because of our righteousness, get to escape. And by the way, just clarify that. Our righteousness, well, it's not ours, is it? It's Christ's. It's imputed to us. We're given something that we didn't have. We couldn't have earned. We can't be righteous. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, by his grace, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, says, okay, all of your sin, all of your wrongdoing, all of your corruption and wickedness and iniquity, all those things, that is put upon Christ. And Christ suffered on the cross to pay for that. And in exchange, we are given all of Christ's righteousness. So God looks at you and I now. We've put our faith and trust in him, and he sees the perfection of Jesus. That's why when we pray, we pray not in our own name. We pray in Jesus' name. That's the only grounds on which we can come before God the Father. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 says that we are to wait for his son from heaven, 
which is what we are doing right now, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, and we're told, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It's interesting. It's kind of a past tense and a future tense in, in this verse here. Which delivered us, it's been done. It was done at Calvary. But delivered us from the wrath that is to come. And that's it both in terms of God's ultimate judgment, the, the lake of fire for those that will reject God, but also in terms of this time of judgment that's coming upon the earth. And then in First Thessalonians 5 verse 9, we're told very clearly that God has not appointed us to wrath. This is for believers, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your only other option is to, if you want to reject God, if you want to live in darkness as opposed to light, well, to wait and see what happens when God starts to bring that judgment upon the world. We're told it's going to come as a real shock. It's going to be like a thief in the night for those that dwell on the earth. And Revelation 6 makes it very clear that the world is suddenly going to be thrown into turmoil like it's never known before. Back in Genesis in chapter 18, that passage we were looking at the other week regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. As Abraham explains, or so God explains to Abraham what he's about to do, Abraham is kind of just speaking to God and he says, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is what Abraham says to God, but it's a true statement. And of course God will do that when it is right. You know, if we were judged, our sin was judged at Calvary, then we won't go through that time of judgment that is coming upon the earth. That's why, as radical and as bizarre and as strange as it seems, God will take his people out of the earth. We refer to it as the rapture. And the world laughs and makes fun of these things, but when these things come to pass, people will see, their eyes will be open, they'll start to piece it together and they'll realize Incredibly, Revelation 6 tells us they still don't repent, but there we go. You know, in, in the, the flood, we've got three groups specifically. We've got those that perished in the flood. Those who rejected, who mocked, who scoffed, who laughed at Noah, who said, ah, this isn't going to happen. We've then got those that were preserved through the flood, i.e. Noah and his family. But in a, a more true example, we've then got those that were removed prior to the flood. In this case, specifically, Enoch. How was Enoch removed? Rapture. Taken alive from earth into heaven. We see this model laid down for us even there. So we read then, the Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Uh, Interestingly, the uh, idea there, going back to uh, Genesis 6.14, the pitch that was on the inside, the outside, uh, is a Hebrew word, kafir. Uh, it just means atonement. That was that covering. Uh, it's, it's lovely. And it, it's the same for us. You know, the righteousness that we have is because of this atonement for what Christ did for us, that covering to protect us. Verse 2. Of every clean, 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 I'll try again. Edit that bit out. Of every clean beast thou shalt take thee, uh, take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. So, most animals go in two by two. That's what we kind of learn and understand when we're children. But there were groups that were taken in by sevens. And these were the clean animals. Okay, those were designated as being clean. The male and his female and of beasts that are not clean, two uh, by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth. Now, one of the reasons God does this is to allow that some would have been offered up in sacrifice immediately after the flood. We'll see that. But it was to allow the repopulation of these clean animals after the earth. But the question, after the flood, but the question we need to kind of ask is, how did Noah understand or know what was clean or unclean? Well, we find a lot of these things were actually founded way back even in Eden. The idea of atonement through the shedding of blood. The, again, the, the seed of the woman, the idea of the virgin birth is laid down there in Eden for us. Marriage is founded in Eden. It's God's idea, by the way. So man can say what he wants about marriage, but it's God's idea. He sets the rules. He tells us what it is. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Clothing and covering is all laid down in Eden for us. And these laws regarding what is clean and unclean are all laid down in Eden. The laws regarding the Sabbath were given there as well, that the seventh day should be a day of rest. 
The man was to be saved by grace. We see also laid down there. The origin of sin and need of a saviour is also expressed there. Verse 4, we carry on. For yet seven days and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. See, just an interesting thing here because Noah knew the, the day. He didn't know the hour. And I just want to highlight something because this is not talking about date setting as such. But I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding of some of the New Testament passages that speak about the day and the hour and other passages that speak just about the hour. It makes a really interesting study, if you wanted, to go and look at those passages in context and see what they are actually talking about. They're not all talking about the same event. Interestingly, in 1 Thessalonians 5 again, verses 4 to 6, Paul says to the Thessalonians, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of the, the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others let us watch and be sober. There's an implication that we should know the day. You know the parable of the wise and foolish virgins? Well, they knew the day. They didn't know the hour. So very interesting things there you can ponder and study further if you want to. We're told, Noah did according unto all the Lord commanded him. And just an interesting thing here, because I wonder if part of that thing that was commanded was burying Methuselah. Do you remember that Methuselah died just before the flood came? And it could well have been even the the very day before. Methuselah's name meant when he dies, it shall come. And right now on the, the edge of this flood coming upon the earth, I wonder if one of those things, that the last thing that Noah did was just burying his great, great, great granddad, Methuselah the oldest person that ever lived according to the Bible. And again, his life being a testimony of God's faithfulness, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, as Peter tells us. Noah was 600 years when the flood of waters were upon the earth, and Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. So Noah, seeing all these animals just coming, God brought them to, to Noah. You know, and the clouds are starting to gather, and the elephants and the giraffes and all these things, and then the, the sloths are like, come on, hurry up, please, come on. You know, just imagine all these things getting onto the ark. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. There's a, there's a pause here, isn't there? Notice because they get into the ark and then there's a, a, just a little gap here, seven days before the waters come. Interestingly, because it does seem to be implied by scripture, a short gap from the time that the church is taken to the time that the tribulation begins. A very similar picture. We're told verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So a couple of things that are going on here. The rain is coming down, and I suspect that what we're seeing is that water canopy that God had originally set up uh, way back at the beginning of creation. That seems to be coming crashing down at this point. And we're told that the waters of the great deep were broken up. Seemingly we've got waters from inside the earth again coming up at this point. Now, let me take you through just a, a quick, very quick possibility of what may have actually taken place at the time of the flood because we've got some anomalies what actually happened well you see we've got the problem of the dinosaurs what actually happened to them and I, probably one of the things there was that after the flood a lot of their vegetation had changed that the climate was very different the oxygen level on the earth may have reduced significantly but we've also got this thing about the mammoths. This is quite interesting when you look at this because, you know, we're, we're familiar with all these kind of pictures we see, but there are frozen mammoths found all around, certainly the, the Arctic Ocean region. And these weren't cold living environments. that they, they ate tropical food. The earth was seemingly very diff- uh, different then. A rhinoceros also frozen solid. And, and, you know, when we start to look at these things around the earth, there's just a gr- massive 
load of the, the tusks from uh, mammoths that they've found. All these things frozen. Well, we've also got petrified forests at the South Pole that have been discovered. And there's land animals fossilized in locations below sea level. Something very interesting went on at the time of the flood. And again, we've got fossilized sea creatures at the top of mountains. I mentioned this already. Well, Grand Canyon and so on, all this. I mean, quite easy to understand those things with water running off the earth after the flood. But then we've got the mid-oceanic mountain ranges. Within the oceans, there's mountain ranges and so on. How did all these come about? There is the mid-Atlantic ridge, this kind of rip, this scar that goes all the way through the Atlantic from top to bottom. This seam where seemingly at some point in the past, something dramatic took place. So what cause the, the big submarine canyons that we've got. Something go, something go down miles. You know, the coal and the oil fields and all of these kind of things and the fossil graveyards. And, you know, so many of these things start to, to you know, raise questions that seemingly are all answered by the flood. Again, the, the kind of jigsaw fit of the, the continents and so on. Uh, well, I'm just going to share with you very quickly a theory. And this is a theory, I'm not saying this is what the Bible says, because Acts 17.11 applies here, that we should always look to see what Scripture says. But there is a lot of things that Scripture reveals to us. And I'm just going to throw this out there as a, just a thought. The planet Mars was feared by all ancient cultures. Um, it was the Roman god of war. Uh, Homer, the Greek poet, describes it as the bane of mortals uh, in Mars Hill, Athens, uh, they have the Oropagus, Mars Hill. It was a seat of judgment. Um, and the Epic of Gilgamesh blames Mars for the flood. This is a non-biblical historical document that we've got. And it's kind of seemingly poetry, but it blames Mars for the flood. Now, that seems maybe strange to us. I mean, as she says there, but Enlil um, shall not come near the offering because without reflection he brought on the deluge and consigned my people to destruction as soon as Enlil, who's speaking of Mars, arrived and saw the ship, Enlil was wroth. Now, why would anybody write something like that? Well, very quickly, there's good evidence to suggest that once the Earth and Mars were on synchronous orbits, the Earth is previously on a 360-day orbit, Mars on a 720. On two points during the year, Mars and Earth would have come very close to each other. Now, the suggestion is, on one of those occasions, Mars comes so close to the Earth that it actually causes the crust of the earth to rupture. Seemingly, God arranges this at this particular moment in time. Now, it really is a plausible conjecture here. So, as this happens, it starts to cause all these things. Now, there's also other historical references to a something called glacius, some sort of um, ice meteor that crashed into the earth at some time in the past. And it seems possible... That all of this, God conspired to occur at the same time. Now, one of the reasons this is really quite credible is because I mentioned a few weeks ago that to freeze a mammoth whole, so that not part of it would decay, but to freeze it whole, you've got to get to temperatures about 400 below zero. Now, there's no natural mechanism to do that. Something happened. So, the suggestion is... And there's a number of people that have put forward these ideas. There's, some, there's two NASA scientists that have put forward some of these suggestions. Um, those kind of comets, by the way, are typically about 300 to 400 below. So that accounts for the kind of temperature. The idea possibly, uh, and some of you say as well, the ancient Chaldean, Sumerian, Assyrian literature all have these legends of two stars that approached the Earth at the time of the flood. Again, the Epic of Gilgamesh, as I said, blames Mars with the flood. As we said already, Mars can't retain water, but there is evidence on Mars that there were once flash floods on one side only, which is also very interesting. Again, planets like Saturn and so on have got ice rings, and we're still not quite sure where they came from. But this is a, a theory that maybe answers those questions. Donald Patton, uh, again, uh, very interesting book, the, the Mars-Earth Wars. So it doesn't contradict anything the Bible says. He says this, what was that other star that also approached the earth? Was it Glacius, an icy satellite with a diameter of 500 to 600 miles? Was it shattered ice coming in from the fragmented Glacius that entered our atmosphere, burned and recondensed into a hemisphere-wide warm rain? Talmudic evidence points in this direction. Now he's referring to Jewish evidence that also speaks of these things. So the suggestion basically 
Uh, oh, there's, uh, uh, there's other signs. I'll leave this, this bits in the notes so you can read afterwards. The suggestion then we've got is that this glacier is coming in, Mars is close, the Earth's crust ruptures, water's coming out from the Earth. As this ice meteor crashes into the Earth, magnetic forces will pull it to the poles. Uh, it would dump these uh, 400 degree ice below, uh, sorry, at the, at the poles particularly. That would be enough to suddenly and almost instantaneously freeze the mammoths in the locations where we find them, which is very, very interesting in itself. Uh, we've also got other animals, including camels, by the way, that have been found frozen solid uh, and so on. Um, there's also, to support this, uh, an idea that was put forward by an Australian astronomer, uh, George Dodwell, um, and he concluded that at some point, around about 4,350 years ago, something struck the Earth and has caused the shift, the axis shift that we have at the moment, and set off kind of a, a wobble, uh, which is just an interesting thing, again, supported by what we see. The Earth today spinning an angle of 23.5 degrees. Um, and that, by the way, is also what gives us our seasons. Well, seemingly, the seasons were introduced after the flood. So just lots of ideas here that if this is true, all corroborate. It's, it's kind of a theory that fits all the facts that we know. Again, the remaining ice in this collapsing canopy and all the subterranean water carrying on them for then typically the 40 days of the flood. So the water under the earth, the canopy above it, in fact, let's just go back to that verse from Psalms, Psalm 136, verse 6. This is to him that stretched out the earth above the waters. It speaks of the water that's under the earth there. So as we get this kind of rupture in the crust, water forcing out, forcing the ground, the, the, the earth um, to the side, seemingly giving us our mountain regions. And interestingly enough, when you look at where the mountains occur, they always seem to follow the lines of these kind of ruptures in the earth's crust, uh, all seemingly taking place at the time of the flood. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into any more detail now. I'll leave these things there if you want to look at them. But in Psalm 104. This is just a, a paraphrase. This is the, the Living Bible. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 104. But it says, You bound the world together so that it would never fall apart. You clothed the earth with floods of water covering up the mountains. You spoke, and at the sound of your shout, the water collected into vast ocean beds. And the mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. And then you set a boundary for the sea so that they would never again cover the earth. Exactly what we see has happened in the earth. You know, if you sift any types of material together, they will naturally form sedimentary layers. When we had the explosion of Mount St. Helens some years ago, all the ash and the dust that were laid down formed in sedimentary layers. Exactly what we've seen. Just the theory, just some ideas. Let's just finish off. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark they and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh and God, as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lift up above the earth and the waters prevailed up and were increasing, increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went up, so it went upon the face of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole of heaven were covered. This answers the question, was it a global flood? Was it a local flood? No, clearly it was global because the, all the mountains are covered. The high hills, all of them were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. And all flesh uh, died that moved upon the earth, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of the beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life all of that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So 
And that brings us to uh, the end of this section. You know, there's a lot more. I'm sure the slides that I'm going to leave in there um, if you want to, to look at them online afterwards. Um, but this is just God's dealing with this problem. Just a couple of closing comments. There was only one ark. Today, there is only one solution to man's problem of sin, and that is Jesus Christ. There was only one door into that ark. There is only one way to salvation, and that is, again, through Jesus Christ. All those that were in the ark were saved. All those who are in Christ will be saved. You know, and as has been pointed out before, all the alternative theological speculations ended when it started to rain. All those people that started to say, oh, this couldn't happen. The moment it started to rain, all those theories were washed away. You know, it doesn't matter whether the majority didn't think it was going to happen because the majority are not always right. You know, the word of God is always right. And we should point out the majority did, sadly, drown in the flood at that time. You know, and we may not be in the majority of of the groundswell of opinion today. The media and, and the world would love to tell us we're wrong. But, you know, the Bible has never, ever been proven wrong on anything. That's why we can trust not what it just says about the past, but what it reveals to us about the future. Let's bow our hearts and close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Father, it is fascinating to stop and to consider what may have happened. But Lord, the the truth, the things that we really do need to know are revealed in your word. And the reality is that you are a God of love and that the flood was sent Lord, as an act of mercy and compassion to save mankind, to make a way for the Savior to one day be born, the Savior whom now we put our faith and trust in. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts. Help us to realize, Lord, the privilege that it is of being called of you. How privileged was Noah to be invited into that ark. Lord, that you gave him that, that calling, that privilege of being saved. And Father, for all of us here this morning, those who have put their trust in you, we thank you. Lord, for any that don't yet know you, Lord, those maybe that are listening to this recording, Lord, we just pray you stir their hearts, that they would look to you and realize there is only one Savior, only one way, that all who enter in will be saved from the wrath to come. Father, we just pray you bless us as we go from here today. Keep us safe and keep us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.